0: Hello, this is Comfort Blanket, I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. Uh, A book or a film or a TV show or a record that makes someone feel safe. Uh, Something they return to again and again and never lets them down. So I'll have a natter about it, see if we can work out just what it is about their choice that makes them feel so good and how it does its magic. This time I'm talking to the writer Andrew Mayle. Andrew is one of the editors of Mojo magazine and writes about film and TV and music for Sight and Sound and The Guardian. And the Sunday Times Culture He's one of the regular contributors to the brilliant backlisted podcast. And Andrew has chosen for his comfort blanket the original series of Star Trek.
2: These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission. To explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.
0: So you've chosen something very specific, very big, but very comforting which is the original series of Star Trek. Was this something that was a comfort to you as a kid? Or was it something you come to when you are a bit older?
3: No, very much it was a comfort as a kid and two stages of childhood. So there was very much kind of that stage of childhood where everything is a bit fuzzy and psychedelic and you're not entirely sure what you're watching. (laughs) And the main thing that you remember from Star Trek is the opening titles and the end titles. So you remember the scary green face and you remember the music and you remember it almost as an auditory trip. It's a kind of psychedelic experience. So (laughs) even before I knew what I was watching, the the colours of it and the sounds of it were kind of part of my DNA. And then in the, I think it would have been the early 80s, they started showing it as part of kind of the young people's programming on BBC Two. And on BBC
2: Two now, Captain Kirk and his crew could be forgiven for thinking they're the victims of a time warp.
3: So the idea that the news would start on BBC One and then you'd go upstairs and watch your portable, if you, you know, yeah. if you were me. And it would be like some kind of youth TV. And then they would show Star Trek. And so it became a way of decompressing after school. I found school quite stressful. I wasn't, wasn't particularly popular at school. And kind of so to come home and to then to rediscover this thing that was already part of my DNA that I'd grown up with as a kid, to find that I could then watch it in terms of story and watch it in terms of character but that it still had these comforting sounds that I remember from very early childhood. So there was something very womb-like about the sounds. There was something very protective about them, something very calming. It's what people would now call ambient. There was an ambient bed throughout the whole of Star Trek. The sound that, of
0: sort of the, the, the bridge beeps and the, yeah, the door whooshes. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the door
3: whooshes and, the you know, the fact that obviously the creator, Gene Roddenberry, he, he'd been in the war and he'd kind of, You know, come out with this idea that in order for something to be convincing, it needed to have those sounds of sonar and radar and everything. So he brings those in, but once you remove them from context, they actually just become something very soothing, very almost like kind of the kind of music that you'd put on for a child or a dog, so your puppy when it comes home for it to fall asleep.
0: It's a non-narrative element of it that I think is really important. I think people talk about, especially these kind of things science fiction and things because of Star Wars and the hero's journey and things that they always talk about these things in terms of epic narrative and heroes and things and you go well some of it's about a bath
1: yeah some of it's absolutely. about losing
0: yourself in a place and I remember seeing when they brought back Star Wars for trailers at the cinema when they sort of said they were going to remaster it or whatever it was in 1997 that the reaction of the audience wasn't about the story it was about the sound of the breathing and yeah the laser gun noises and you realize that for all the fuss people make about the soundtracks of science fiction the john williams thing Mm. the wagnerian idea of using sort of leitmotifs and having a theme for each hero i think there's also the sound effects the sound of the bridge the sound of the medical bay the sound of beaming down
3: i think of those before i think of the theme tune i think of those before there's a kind of in fact i would say that one of the Annoying elements of Star Trek and uh, and is the music that they use for the fights, the repetitive music they use to fight the did well, did I
0: was watching a good Kirk Puncher, yeah, I was thinking it's very sort of I'm going to use the wrong example, but sort of Eric Korngold kind of classic adventure serial yes. music. It's the kind of music that's on uh, The Vikings, no, well, it's kind of it's more swashbuckler
3: films, isn't it? It is, but yeah, the Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and that's clearly. One of the things that it, it's drawing from. Well, they asked so for
0: that because they said they didn't want space music. Wasn't yes. What they want is they didn't want, I imagine, uh, Daily Earth to still sermons. So they've gone for classic adventure music. First series it hasn't got the ethereal vocal. Yes, on the theme music, which appears in the second series and goes. Oh, that's quite annoyingly sci-fi. Yes. And the first series, it's a straight adventure theme. Well,
3: one of the things that Roddenberry was almost obsessive about was that he didn't want it to in any way resemble Lost in Space. And Lost in Space has all those kind of, you know... Oh,
0: because that was on the other channel at the same time, wasn't it? exactly. There was a really weird thing where I think whoever it was who made Lost in Space, CBS or someone, they pretended to be interested in Star Trek. Yeah to Roddenberry offered him money for it just for long enough to find out what he was doing and he thought rip off all my ideas so I think he never Lost in them Space it. so
3: anything that kind of in any way and that's why he didn't I mean even though you would say that lots of Star Trek is kitsch and is mm. camp it was the one thing that Roddenberry at the time had an, an anathema towards was like anything that seemed kitsch or camp anything <laughs> that seemed to not take the characters seriously, and I think that's that's a really yes, important it, point. Danger, Will
0: Robinson. You look at it and you think because it's a early American color series from the mid '60s, so it resembles Batman, yes, uh, superficially, from a great age of camp and a great age of kitsch. Yeah, what's odd about Star Trek is it is not a B movie. No. It's not borrowed anything from... To the extent that I remember him talking about when they were designing the Enterprise, they got a big sheaf of all the Flash Gordon spaceships, all the spaceships and everything else, and he went, not that. Yes. So not B-movie sci-fi. Nothing should remind you of B-movie. It is, for all that it became easy to do comedy sketches about and and, and stand-up routines about, as if it was a joke, None of it's a joke. It's got good jokes in it. It's mm. not humorless. It's not a sort of poe-faced... They're
3: jokes about character. That's
2: yeah. the, that's the important sitcom. thing. Yeah. There's just one thing, Mr Spock. You can't tell me that when you first saw Jim alive that you weren't on the verge of giving us an emotional scene that would have brought the house down. Merely my quite logical relief that Starfleet had not lost the highly proficient captain. Yes, Mr Spock. I understand. Thank you, Captain. Of course, Mr Spock. Your reaction was quite logical.
3: Thank you, Doctor. And a pig's eye...
2: Come on, Spock. Let's go mind the
3: store. There are jokes at the expense of Kirk's character. There are jokes at the expense of Bones's character, at Spock's character, and they're the kind of jokes that you would make about someone if you worked in an office with them. They're not jokes about the setup. They're not because no. no one finds being in space funny. No, because it's their job. No, that's the, that's that's an important point. It's like they are doing a job, and if you go in and do a job every day with these people that you work with. You make up jokes about them and you take the piss out of them. And that's what yeah. they do in that work environment. It's a proper
0: precinct. And Roddenberry had written Westerns and things, but he'd been a cop. And it's got that feel of a, of a cop shop, of, a, yeah. of some guys
3: going to it's work. A proce- yeah, it's, it's a procedural it's in the a way. It's the Brooklyn yeah. 99 cop. Yeah, uh, and, and, but also they have to... You NYPD know, it's, Blue, it's that It's <laughs> very much... The, the, one of the things that kind of bothers me is that when certain critics, when they spot a formula... They think they've caught the show out and they think (laughs) they think by pointing out the formula, they're kind of, you know, it's like they've kind of unmasked the villain in (laughs) Scooby-Doo. They go, ha ha, it's got a formula. But the formula is the reason why it works. And and it's network TV, especially in this age of streaming and Netflix and everything is incredibly undervalued. The fact that you can have a set of characters every week, a different thing for them to investigate every week. And then it all reverts back to the start at the end. Everything is resolved. I think
0: this is why this works as as a good comfort telly and why it's been so successful, why it's so franchisable and things. When I think about this, I was a Doctor Who and Star Wars kid. I'm that mm. generation. And I watched Star Trek. I was aware of Star Trek. I like the cartoon, actually.
3: The cartoon, I think, is canon.
0: Yeah, I, th- I, I enjoyed that. I think that was what was on telly when I first got into it. And then yeah. I watched it and I enjoyed it. But I thought, when I, when I was researching this, I thought, I know Star Trek. I watched it. I thought... I've probably seen four episodes. Mm. And I would say I really like Star Trek. And I'm a, I'm hugely fond of the idea that you used to be allowed to say you're a big fan of something when you'd seen four episodes. And the reason yeah. for that was those four episodes are fractal elements of how the show works. You watch one Columbo, yeah. you can be a Columbo fan.
3: Absolutely. And it's the
0: opposite of saying, oh, it gets good in season four. Yeah. And I love the generosity of saying you may have caught one episode of Minder or Star Trek, or the A Team, and you're allowed to say I'm a really big fan of it.
3: Well, the, I mean, there is a, there's a kind of an additional point to that that you can, you watch one episode of Star Trek and you know where you are with all the characters. Yeah, you it's know, soap
0: writing almost. It's, yeah, the clarity you know
3: what Kirk's relationship to the crew is. You know what Bones' relationship to Spock is. You know what Spock's role is, and it's not like you know somebody says, to her, "Oh, you you really need to have watched the episode before that yeah. to figure this out." It's basically you're there and. Again, if we're talking about why it's a comfort, the history of Star Trek franchises is really a history of them getting further and further away from why it works. Yes. By bringing in lots of elements that they think are clever, like, you know, like world building or trying, you know, try not being entirely sure who this character is and what their role is. The giveaway
0: with this show, I think, in terms of saying that it works instantly and based on the idea that you understand who these characters are. It's a, it's a precinct. It's a sitcom They've all got very clear roles. Is if you watch it in order, and I watched the first few episodes for this, I think within two episodes, they've done one where everyone's characters change. And you can't do that in episode two or three. No. You can't do one where there's an evil Kirk and a good Kirk. You can't do one where something gets on board that gets rid of everyone's inhibitions and makes them not like themselves, unless within the first two minutes of that episode, for an audience who may not have seen last week's episode, you've established who everyone is. Yeah. Level two,
2: corridor three reports a disturbance. Mr. Sulu chasing crewman with a sword. Put security on it. Fascinating. A pattern is developing. Hidden personality traits being forced to the surface.
0: So there's an enormous deftness and clarity to the writing and the playing. Mm. Don't take the piss out of the performances because they are exactly the right performances yeah. to get clarity over. You're watching something that is not of the same genre as modern streamed long arc television. You're watching something that needs to catch your attention. For one week only, give you a complete primer in who everyone is and what they want. And then the first thing they'll do is say, hey, an alien's got in and it makes all the people behave the opposite of how they are.
3: And you go, follow it. But this, and there's a really important point to that, that is also about revealing what their inner darker character is. Yes. Because if you watch it enough, you realise whenever Bones changes, whenever McCoy changes, there is an inner rage that comes out. There is a real darkness. Yes, it's not an opposite of him. It's, the, no, it's, it's, it's his, his hidden side. Exactly. They are the hidden selves. And so there's, you know, there's an episode where there's a bad Kirk is aboard um, the spaceship. The transporter accident. Yeah.
0: Splits Kirk into a good and one and a bad one. Can I help you, Captain?
3: Jim will do it here, Jan. Oh. You're too beautiful to ignore. Too much
2: warmth.
3: But the bad Kirk is an aspect of his character and there's a darkness to him but there's also a kind of commitment and a kind of selfishness that the good Kirk needs. And they discuss this. He doesn't have to kill the bad Kirk. He has to integrate the bad Kirk because he's only a good leader because that bad Kirk is inside If If he kills the bad Kirk, he's sunk. And what is it that makes one
2: man an exceptional leader? We see here indications that it is his negative side which makes him strong. That his evil side, if you will, properly controlled and disciplined... Is
3: vital to his strength. There's this brilliant point in it where the bad Kirk is gaining in power and suddenly the good Kirk has no ability to make decisions. Yes,
0: and you're right. It's not about flipping their characters over and swapping them around so that so that the Spock guy is the Kirk guy and the Kirk guy is the Spock guy. They don't do that. No. And a good character to represent that would be Spock, who is someone who is on the surface, because he's half human, half Vulcan, on the surface is entirely Vulcan and he's always trying to suppress his human.
2: Spend a whole lifetime learning to hide my feelings
0: so when you have an episode where he falls in love or becomes really angry like he does when he hits puberty in that lovely episode the beginning of season two and he gets really grumpy with everybody you're going oh it's not that he's not spock it's just that the inner spock has come out so i'm learning more about him
3: and if you notice one of the things that mccoy does all the time is try and draw out that inner spock <laughs> yes. because McCoy is aware of his own inner rage, you know, yeah. that that he has got that element in himself, and he's not at ease with Spock's cool exterior. So he's try he's always it. Yeah. He knows so, it's he knows it's fake, he knows it's dishonest.
2: Bones, I'm a busy man. Jim, when I suggested to Spock that it was time for his routine checkup, your logical, unemotional first officer turned to me and said, You will cease to pry into my personal matters, doctor, or I shall certainly break your neck. Spark said that.
0: Someone told me recently a brilliant a writing tip, which was to draw a little grid, a, a two by two, a four, a four square grid, like that political compass. Yeah. Thing, one of those. And what you do is you write on it a grid of uh, what's something the character knows about themselves, what's something other characters know about them they don't know, and what's something that they don't want other people to know there's a secret. You do a grid of that. Yeah. So basically, it tells you who your character is. And Star Trek, as a piece of character writing, even if you're watching it five minutes in, all this stuff is on the screen, on the surface, in the performances and in the writing, that all these characters have got a surface self, a hidden self, a public self, and a thing that other people... McCoy knows Spock's furious. Yeah. Spock doesn't know that about himself. I want to hide that. So they've got these lovely networks and matrices of relationships, which means that then what you can play out on television is not a boring old sci-fi program, but a show about people. Yes. And... What's good about that is if you've just convinced a network to show a sci-fi programme against their will and they think you're going to do something really shitty about planets called falabba Daba, what you show them instead is something completely accessible because everyone can relate. Everyone's been stuck at work with some people who annoy them. Yeah. And I think that's secretly what Star Trek is about. And it's not a budgetary restriction that's led to that. It's the fact that it's a better show for being about a load of people stuck on a submarine together.
1: Are
3: you insane? The original series of Star Trek, has more in common with The Thing an Alien than any later series of Star Trek.
0: Yes, does. it's about people at work trapped yeah. together. I've said this a lot, I said that if you want to understand why things work, why they become popular, they're usually an allegory for a family or a workplace. Uh, Blackadder is not a historical sitcom. It's about someone who's at work, where there are idiots underneath them and an idiot boss who could fire them. That's all it's about, so everyone can relate to it. You don't have to put on screen that thing. You don't have to put a workplace or a family on screen. You can put something set in the Napoleonic Wars on screen or in space because people do read allegories very, very well. And they go, I felt like that. We all felt like Kirk. That like there are people to relate to in the crew. There's a nice big crew. You can pick your people. Yes. Uh, and they all represent different things. And most of the drama happens not only within the closed walls of the ship, but also within the dynamics of those people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that it does, which is exactly what Alien does and exactly what the thing does, is it brings in this rogue element into the setup of the ship. You basically, something arrives on board the (laughs) ship and it is an infection That happens a lot, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. That's a
0: good season. One has that story four or five times straight away.
3: The ones I watched. And why doesn't it get boring? Why do Why do you watch Star Trek (laughs) and not go? Oh, they're doing that thing again. Because because again because it's like watching the thing after watching Alien. Going, this is just like Alien. I don't want to watch this. But there's such a delight in seeing what this alien quote unquote element is. And how it screws with the setup on board the enterprise. How this is, it messes with these and as you say, how it messes with these people who are basically just gonna try going around trying to do their sodding job. They're they're
0: not soldiers. Yeah. It's not about space wars. it's not about space war. They've just usually the beginning where space space command gives them a mission. And the mission is something more like go and take some rocks or leave some yeah. rocks. There's, there's one where they they land because someone needs a medical checkup and yeah. you're thinking That's definitely quite a big spaceship to land to check on two people on an outpost, but... But it's their job.
2: Ship Surgeon McCoy and myself are now beaming down to the planet's surface. Our mission? Routine medical examination of archaeologist Robert Crater and
3: his wife, Nancy. That's They've it. been They've given, given the a job, job. and I, they go out and they do that job. They're
0: like those strange sort of exploratory vessels that have to go and check on penguins.
3: Yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's you know, it's exactly what he says at the start. He basically says, "This is our job. It's five-year mission to explore strange
2: new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before."
3: This is their job. It basically it starts with a job description. <laughs> And there is a bit where, you know, obviously Shatner says to boldly go where no man has gone before. And you feel that that's almost like kind of something that was added afterwards to yeah. give it a kind of grandiosity and a drama. Because basically what you've got is somebody basically reading out their job description. And also
0: where they go very often. And the first one is someone has already gone there because they're taking some medical supplies. to, them. Yeah. As in, that's not what happens. What's odd about about the show is that it has this reputation of being uh, the pitch that uh, Roddenberry gave was wagon train in space. and. Space, the final frontier. And you go, oh, it's about frontiersmen. It's about the big push west. It's westerns. But it's not westerns. They're merchant seamen. They've got a job to do. It's got far more in common. Well, they're just seamen. They're on a boat. Uh, He based uh, Kirk on uh, Hornblower. It's got that master and commander, which if you watch that film, it's basically a Star Trek movie. Yeah. Uh, It's a steampunk Star Trek movie. It is a
3: Star Trek movie. compelled to ask, am I speaking with my old friend or to the ship's captain? Yeah.
0: There's, there's, a, there's a, a bold commander with a, with a wit and a wink. And there's also his science officer who wants to go and look at penguins. It's not a question
2: of pride or anything like. Just a question of duty. Duty, right. Yes, I believe I've heard it well spoken of. Well, you can be as satiric as you like. Viewing the world through your microscope is your prerogative. This is a ship of war. Fascinating.
0: The format is that they're out doing work. So it's got more in common. It's not about fighting the Native Americans or claiming new land. What it's about is the same thing as Alien and The Thing and Dark Star. It's space truckers. Yes,
3: absolutely.
2: How far do you? Ten months. Oh, God.
3: Great. Yes. Dallas, I think you should come and see Kane. Has his condition changed?
2: It's simpler if you just come and see him. We're on our way. Fascinating.
0: And that gives it an enormous sort of workplace earthiness. And it's then about workplace dynamics.
3: Yeah, so you you have things like... Mainly sexual harassment. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? Because when obviously when Roddenberry started it, he wanted to cast female characters. He wanted to cast women of colour. He wanted it to have a kind of female positive set of characters.
2: We have the helm, maintain present course. Yes,
3: sir. Yet then you bring in rogue elements. You bring in the fact that in a very early episode, Nichelle Nichols, Uhura is presented as quite horny. I'm an illogical woman who's beginning to feel too much a part of that communications council. Why don't you tell me I'm an attractive young lady or ask me if I've ever been in love? You know, she's yeah. she's coming on to various various members of the that staff. The, that having the,
0: there's a real feeling once you get past the initial part, once you get past the cage, where, the, where number one, the, the sort of the Spock party yeah. by a woman, and once you get past that and they start going, well, this is, how, this is what our advertisers will accept. Yes. You've got to bear that in mind. It's a network show, so... They initially thought they wouldn't accept Spock. They think he was the devil. They thought, oh, advertisers won't accept a senior woman. They wanted to be a housewife or a secretary. So yeah. You notice that from that point on, a lot of the women are bringing food to the men and, yeah. and doing. So you have, jobs. You,
3: yeah. So you look at it on paper, and they have kind of high-ranking jobs, and they, you know there's a woman who works alongside Bones in the surgery and everything. But then, yes, there is almost kind of like a mission creep. You know, kind <laughs> of the the roles start to change. Hey, Janice, is that for me? Don't you wish it was? Oh, about that. Yeah, how'd you like to have her as your own personal yeoman? And another thing that contributes to that is, of course, the costumes. Yeah,
0: which I, I noticed. I watched an episode and I, I, I was stunned to watch a woman run through in black trousers rather than the tiny sort of uh, twat skimming miniskirt that's the standard Star Trek uniform. Um, and I thought, whoa, and I mentioned this on Twitter and loads of Star Trek fans said, oh, no, that was Roddenberry's original idea was trousers." Yeah. You realise this is a this is a workplace drama, mm. effectively, being made at the time of Mad Men. Yes. So, effectively, the relationship the women have to the men will be the same that you've seen in Mad Men. Yeah. As in, there'll be a lot of bum-pinching. It'll be mainly about how terribly tempting it is to be in an office full of absolutely stunning crumpet. Yeah. That's a major concern for male writers. Yeah. But, of course, DC Fontana is uh, a woman. Lots yes. of the writers and the senior script people on this yes. not sexist in no. that way. But it's definitely got a bubbling undercurrent of, uh, the office is a dangerous environment now it's so full of women. Yeah. Uh, which is very 60s. Yeah. So I was wondering why they'd gone away from the the, the trousers to the sort of the, the, the miniskirt. And it turns out that Yeoman Janice Rand, who's the red shirt lady with the three hairstyles, the big yes, Two's
3: it is It's something ridiculous. Like it's kind of... Um, three Yves Saint Laurent wigs sewn together.
0: Yeah, it looks like something from Alien, like and three kept, face huggers they are they eating kept each other.
3: They kept going back to, I think it was, it was either Jean Coon or, or, or Roddenberry, and they kept going back to him, and he just kept saying, make it higher, make it yeah. higher.
0: And she eventually, at fan conventions, said there was a machine on board that did that hair in the morning, <laughs> which is a lovely thing to say at <laughs> fan conventions. But Grace Lee Whitney, who played Yeoman Jealous Rand, who is sort of... Kirk's half-love interest for a of and they got rid of her apparently because they wanted him to be randier to have Mm. more women to then not be a will they won't they romance
3: yeah they wanted him to sleep around with different uh, you know different women on different planets she's kind of
0: his space wife in the first series but Grace Lee Whitney got the costume with the trousers on and went to the costume designer who's um, a guy called... Um, um,
3: William Ware Thice. Thank you for knowing yeah. that.
0: That's brilliant. His um, middle
3: name is Ware. That's the easiest oh, way to remember it. Yeah, For wearing the costume. Yeah, and his and his second name is Thighs. So. Thighs.
0: That's, hence, this leads perfectly to the story. Um, <laughs> and she said, uh, you're going to make me wear trousers. He said, this is the space uniform Jean Roddenberry wants. And And she said, I've got dancer's legs. This is a complete waste of why you've cast me.
3: So she asked for a miniskirt. She shouted, William, wear thighs. Wear thighs. And he said, thighs here. Uh,
0: <laughs> underneath underneath this tiny belt. Uh, so she ended up wearing that. And obviously, the classic story of a 60s woman who's asked for something to make her look nice. Immediately, he and other members of the crew started saying, well, and you might put on weight. Now we can see your legs. And started making a field concert about her weight. And then she was worried about her weight. And they put her on or recommended amphetamines, as you would in the 60s. And she got completely hooked on amphetamines to keep her, her figure and um, then started drinking in the evening to take the edge off. And that's her story. She asked for a miniskirt and ended up in some sort of alcoholic. That is, um, that is a story a of the 60s, isn't it? Yeah, 60s tale. But, but but it, she, I, I was stunned that she had asked them. And I think there's a feeling in Star Trek that it is a product of the 60s in that the women are objectified, mm. but they're certainly allowed to write. It's definitely got stories that include them. But it's definitely a product of its time in those depictions. It's having its cake and eat it a lot. the something the studio were delighted there were a lot of women in miniskirts on screen. But it's fascinating that that was requested rather than imposed.
2: Computer, go to sensor probe.
0: Any unusual readings?
2: No decipherable reading on females. However, unusual reading on male board members. Detecting high respiration patterns. Perspiration rates up heartbeat rapid blood pressure higher than normal strike that
3: from the record Mister but there's an interesting thing as well as well as, as well as that going on you have so many plots about men going out of control and attacking women it's not presented as a good thing you're, bas- you're bas- <laughs> basically you're basically yeah um <laughs> but to place so much emphasis on storylines in which women are oppressed or where kind of men we should say it's yeah. much more complex than that yeah, yeah.
0: Even though there's objectification in it, and obviously everyone is delighted, I think season three, where Roddenberry stepped down and the the new producer came in and described the show as tits in space, um, (laughs) which is a terrible pitch, um, but there was a thing of going, of course, it's lovely to watch pretty ladies in tight space outfits, because it's a thing about, it's about workplace dynamics. It's about a series of characters playing off each other, because... They don't do a lot of space battles. They don't do a lot of epic stuff. It's not about them being at war. It's not about those male themes. It's about human dynamics. There's an episode, relationships. There is an
3: episode called Charlie X, which is basically about an incel on board the Enterprise. Yeah. There is this young kid who has been confined to a prison planet and he's brought up onto the Enterprise. I think they have to sort of trans- transport him and he what you don't realize at first is that he has special powers he has the power to kill but he is a teenager and his desires are those of a teenager but he doesn't understand how to behave around women so he starts groping women and assaulting women and the rest of the you know the crew have to put him right and tell him what, that this is wrong
2: are you a girl is that a girl that's a girl
3: and when they tell him he's wrong he says i don't like you talking to me like this I i don't like being treated like this you're being cruel to me that wasn't nice you'll be sorry you wait you'll see you'll be sorry you did that and so you're watching this thing my God, it's in Cell America, sort of 50 years before the letter, you know. There's a
0: fascination with what happens to pent-up emotions.
3: And often pent-up male emotions.
0: Yes, very much. And because you've got a character in there like Spock, who is someone who's battling to control emotions. And, 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 McCoy, and, as and McCoy as well, who has a rage. And Kirk, yeah? who is basically some relentless horn dog. Yeah. Um, it's, it's mainly about sort of what happens if you coop people up on a submarine. Uh, and send them out on a very, very noble mission. And the answer is, they'll drive each other mad. Yeah. But some of those dynamics will be sexual. Yes. Um, In a way that isn't dealt with. There's a, there's a, a revolutionary sexlessness in Alien. Yes. That is a, a function of them uh, casting and writing it gender blind. Yeah. And that is a huge change from how it's done in Star Trek, where... It's an issue. Yeah. The, weirdly, the, the the races, one of the things that makes it so great is that, uh, in the middle of the Cold War, a, a, a vast United Nations on the bridge. All nations are there. You've got Sulu, barely decades after America's at war with Japan. You've got a very, yeah. very positive Japanese-American. You've got, uh, got uh, Walter uh, Koenig as Chekhov. Chekhov. Yeah. Uh, every, it's a mixture of everybody. You've got African-Americans. It's a really good blend. But weirdly, the alien aboard it is the mixture of the sexes. Yes, absolutely. They're it's not like we've fight. sorted
3: out politics. Yeah. Politics is no problem anymore. <laughs> But what we still haven't sorted out is misogyny. You yeah. know, we still haven't sorted out men. Male men,
0: violence. Yeah. The real monster is man, it turns yeah. out. But they literally mean just men.
3: Yeah. <laughs> blokes. The
0: real monster is blokes. <laughs> I don't know what I am or what I'm supposed to be or,
1: or even who. I don't know why I hurt so much inside all the time.
2: You'll live. Believe me. There's nothing wrong with you that hasn't gone wrong with every other human male since the model first came out.
0: I remember loving, as a kid, one of the few episodes I had seen and knew really well, and I had it on, on VHS and I kept it, was the one where Spock falls in love. The, yes. Is it This Side of Paradise? Yeah. Uh, wonderful one, which, which he's up a tree singing, and it's just so beautiful. It's, it's, it's the one that, that joins into the extended universe that includes Limoy's albums. Yeah. Um, it's very good. I love that one because it was about love. And what I didn't realise watching a few from the very beginning is that they were always about love. Yeah. One of the big motives all the time is Kirk seeing a pretty lady. The hero is allowed to pick. Well, it's, it's like, like
3: Harlan Ellison punishes him for that in City on the Edge of Forever. Brilliant episode. You know, Harlan Ellison comes in and basically says, you know, Kirk arriving on an island or arriving, you know, anywhere and falling in love with the woman yeah. is, should be treated seriously. Yeah, it's and, problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And if it affects the even- mission. Captain Edith Keeler
2: is the focal point in time we've been looking for. The point in time that both we and Dr. McCoy have been drawn to. She has two possible futures then. And depending on whether she lives or dies, all of history will be changed. And McCoy is the random element.
3: I'm fascinated now about Bones' character because basically (laughs) the the subtext of City on the Edge of Forever is that Bones gets there first and fucks everything up. (laughs) And possibly Bones actually falls in love with Edith Keeler, Joan Collins' character, the woman who is basically going to start this pacifist movement in america that will prevent america entering world war ii and will mean that the the nazis will get the bomb before everybody else and so the whole future of the world will be destroyed one by an great, american pacifist one of those
0: great star trek well they they really is very very early on they can do time travel and yeah you know. oh You needed that. Yes. Because that's a lot easier than building an alien civilization. Yeah. So within your budget, you can travel through time. Again, Star Trek is a a place for great science fiction writers to go and write a short story, Mm. which is wonderful. It's there, that and the Twilight Zone, the Outer Limits, these places. Yeah. You need to give them the full palette to work with. So it gives them
3: aliens, gives them a spaceship, and it gives them time travel. But the brilliant thing about it is, just going off point, they have the multiverse, but unlike Marvel films, they don't use the multiverse to solve all their problems. The multiverse creates more problems. So they don't do this thing where they just go, oh, we'll we'll go back in time and we'll reset everything and it'll be okay." Suppose we
2: discover that in order to set things straight again, Edith Keeler must die.
3: Bones has caused all the problems Bones has probably fallen in love with Edith Keeler Bones has kind of delayed America's entrance into World War II (laughs) Bones has has destroyed the world, basically And then Kirk and Spock have to go back in And sort out everything that Bones has fucked up And watching all these episodes again This idea of Bones as a force of chaos Is something obviously I never noticed as a kid Killers!
2: Assidents! I won't let I'll kill you first!
3: But it runs all the way through. And I wonder if it's something to do with the fact that before Bones was um, cast in Star Trek, he was a villain in Westerns, good Westerns, like Bud Burtick Westerns and things like that. But he was the bad man. He was kind of like the guy who would kind of murder women and children. He was a proper Western villain. And so when he kind of initially came up to be cast in Star Trek, they said, we we can't have DeForest Kelly in it. He's He's a nasty piece of work. And so what they did, which is a stroke of genius, is they he they gave him a haircut he got a jfk haircut (laughs) so they basically modeled his new haircut on jfk's hair and basically sent him in for more screen test. and they said yeah i buy this i buy bones as a good guy but subtextually and i love kind of when you get character bleed from other films so bones's character in the westerns even though bones is a good guy his Western villain character creeps into the episodes. Well, Shatner said this,
0: said uh, which I thought was a really nice way of summing up what your job is in a network series. He said these are filmed really fast. Yeah. So he said it's all down to casting. He said you don't really get to act much. Yeah. You're cast as a type that you can do. Yeah. Like soap opera. Yeah. I said so you. said you can't put that performance in place don't have time. So you have to hope that you, the essence of you, is enough to do it. Yeah. So he said, I was cast to be kind of me. Yeah. Leonard's cast to kind of be a thing he can do. And DeForest is cast to do a thing he can do. Yeah. They're all cast like soap actors. And that gives them an essence. And I think when you're watching it in honesty, that those don't look like performances. I no. think people who want to be cynical say so they're not great actors. And you know, no, they're not cast to be
3: great actors.
1: They're yeah. cast
0: to be types. So they bring with them baggage from how they were cast yeah. before
3: and if we're talking about comfort that is incredibly comforting yeah because you know where you are you don't fit and so therefore when their characters flip out yeah there's a pleasure in seeing the character flip out but there's also that comfort and the knowledge that it will they will revert back before the end you trust star trek you you place your trust in it and you feel you feel secure in that world
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedincom people today.
0: What you've got with Star Trek, and it's really noticeable when you get to season two and the titles change and DeForest Kelly is up front. Yeah. So you've got your three guys. You've got Bones, Spock kirk your three guys yeah and then the first episode of season two is the one where uh, Spock spot goes through puberty yes. and goes back and has a fight with kirk for for the love of his bride-to-be and he chooses his friends to come and visit the vulcan ceremony and he goes yeah. i will go with kirk and you go oh that makes sense he's your best friend and mccoy yeah and he went oh this is really good because this is kind of your casting power yeah there's been negotiations with your agents and i know they were probably a bit bit pricky about this yeah and there was negotiations who's the star is it Spock or is it Kirk? Is it Shatner or Nimoy? And they've gone, no, they're best friends, but also take this other guy with you. And what it's saying to the audience is, yeah, you pick those three guys. They're the team. Yeah, They're your guys. The three of them have a power together. Maybe a, if you analyse it for some sort of clown dynamic that works, each one's got something the other one's got missing. They know something about each other. You want to see the three of them together. So your opening episode of season two is let's watch these three guys interact and you feel safe because you know them. Even though Spock is being very unspock yeah angry pubertal horny weird you still go there's my three guys
1: spoke
3: are our ceremonies for outworlders
0: they are
2: not outworlders they are my friends
3: let's talk about the red shirts because people one of the ways in which people you know or maybe they don't maybe no one still makes jokes about the red shirts in star trek is like ha. we know who's going to die on that planet because there's the, you know there's the, the minor actor in the red shirt who's going down with them But again, that's a sight of pleasure, because what you have there is you have the known and the unknown. Yeah. You have the red shirts going down, so you think, okay, there's going to be a death on this planet. I'm looking forward to that, because I want to see why that happens. I want to see how this guy meets his end. It's an adventure, a mystery. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, you'll have Scotty, or Sulu, or, or Spock, or Bones going down to the planet, and we know they're not going to die, but... We know something is going to happen to them that is going to complicate the narrative. The, yeah, no, but the known and the unknown. They're not in
0: danger. They're not pieces on the board that are in danger. No. There are pieces on the board that have got targets on their back. Yeah. And it makes you feel that you're able to watch those for collateral damage. Exactly. And for adventure.
3: Yeah. And that but, is satisfying. But they're not So you kind of someone. It's basically operating on two levels. You're basically saying, here's the cannon fodder. Yeah. You know, you can, these guys will die in interesting ways. And here are the complex characters and something will happen to them as well.
0: And then they do that again in, in that lovely uh, Spock's puberty uh, bridal ritual. Uh, Spock Stagdew,
1: will call yes. it. Yes. The Spock <laughs> Stagdew
0: episode where he brings his mates with him. And the question that it builds to the climax is they must fight to the death. One of these people will die. And you go, but the people he brought with you are the not dying people. Yeah. No red shirts came <laughs> down. And suddenly, the you know, it's season two, episode one. Yeah. Kirk and Spock aren't going to die. Yeah. But for a second, you can entertain that thought. They say, you must fight to the death. There's no way out of this. The ritual means you must fight. And yeah. you go, oh! And you allow yourself the thrill of thinking, what if one of my favourites dies? Because yeah. that's not the rules.
2: Yeah. Who said anything about a fight to the death? These men are friends. Force them to fight, but one of them is killed.
0: If you want to take the piss out of the formula of Star Trek, you're not understanding that what you're enjoying is the formula of Star Trek. And it's never clever to point out to the creators a thing they already know. Yes,
3: exactly. They know
0: how this works. They're cleverer than you.
3: Yeah. And to just say, you know, it, it is like saying, oh, I've spotted the formula. Yes, and it's
0: formula. In football, where a ball goes in the net, (laughs) the points go up by one. Trope. (laughs) The point is these tropes are there because they're the breadcrumbs you follow in order to understand story. Yeah. And if you remove them all, it's chaos. Yeah. And not only is it no fun and no comfort, it stops it working.
3: And I think the further Star Trek has gone on, there has been a contempt for the tropes. And there has been a contempt for formula. And there has been a contempt for structure. And so, I mean, I've tried watching some of the more recent Star Treks and I watch TV for a living. So for me to say, I don't know who these people are and I don't know what's going on is not is not for me to say kind of like I'm a bit dim. I'm a bit slow on the uptake. It's like you've taken all those elements of pleasure away from me. That might be a fault of the fan community in that as they got addicted. And I say
0: they, I mean, we got addicted to saying I've spotted how this works. Yeah fan service became surprising them. Yeah. Surprising and delighting and confounding. Forgetting that the only reason those fans are there is because, of course, they understood the rules, even subconsciously. And what you must do is delight them by serving up the thing they're expecting. Yeah. That's not failing. Yes. And yet the fan community will go, seen this before, cliched, yeah. seen that. or well, they're just doing this again. And you went,
3: of course they're doing it again. This does open some intriguing prospects, Captain, since the formula worked. And the other thing that you, st- you, know, that you start doing is world-building.
0: Yes, to try and make it more interesting, you make the view out of the window change. Yes. Because it's funny, because Star Trek, officially, it's limitless. What you're supposed to do is go out and see Strange New Worlds. So they've got a window and a set. They can look out the window and see the Strange New Worlds, or they can beam down on there, and they can beam down, as we all know, because landing a spaceship is an expensive special effect. What that Strange New World will look like is some Roman ruins or a pile of polystyrene rocks because TV budgets can't show you brave new worlds, really. What they can do is find brave new stories and they can bring something back from that world that then affects the place they work in, the Enterprise, and you can have a sensational, exciting story there. But very rarely are you going to see a huge vista. There is a really good one in uh, the opening, the the Vulcan, but they don't waste money on that. No. They don't waste money on world building because they've got these great characters instead.
3: Yes. And I think once you start... To place the emphasis on world building, and once you start to bring in what I call the element of awe, where you have characters who stand back and marvel at vistas and things like that, (laughs) then you it kind of all you're really saying is, Look at the great CGI that we've done, please stop and look at all this work that we've done, and you're not telling a story that involves plot or character.
0: There's a thing where people in sci fi books and sci fi cinema and tv where someone will look for ages at something yeah and you want to say well they wouldn't because this is where they live yeah the only person who'd stop and look at something for ages is an outsider which is why it works if you've got an arthur dent yeah if someone's come on the journey with you or uh, there's a time traveler it works for that kind of thing the crew in star trek don't look out of the window of the enterprise and go oh stars because that's that's their job that any more than people who worked on a sewer
3: go oh shit's going past (laughs) exactly yeah, they're doing a job, and I like the fact that, you know, basically, and what they're doing is they're just kind of reporting on stuff that's coming in. They, <laughs> they, It's quite, you know, being Sulu or being Chekhov, it's quite a boring job, but you've of got course. your boss sitting behind you, yeah. watching you all the time, so you've just got to keep on it. Of course, laden, sir. And I love the fact that there are actual episodes about Sulu and Chekhov losing it, and not being able to do their job properly because they've been infected in some way.
0: Yes, because it's not Sulu's job to do fencing.
3: No. Swashbuckling.
0: <laughs> Swashbuckling wasn't on his CV, but there's that great, that wonderful episode where he's stripped to the waist. And it really funny he's being a, a musketeer.
3: Yeah. But what that is about, and the lovely thing about it is, because of watching it again, you realise that this is something that he is fantasising about yeah. during his boring job. He mentions <laughs> it at the start. He talks yeah, yeah. about fencing. So he's been reading about this. Fencing tones a muscle. Sharpens the eye, improves the posture. It's something that he's kind of been thinking about while he's been doing this boring job that then suddenly becomes a way in which he manifests himself.
0: you at
2: last. Should have put, put that thing away. For honor, Queen and
0: France. The fact they've got a job to do is why they keep coming back to the ship. Yeah. So in terms of the plotting, they don't go out and find brave new worlds and then wander off upriver and explore and find stuff. They find stuff where they land.
3: Like the NASA astronauts, that's what they've been trained to do. They've been trained to not be in awe of space. Correct
2: yeah. to Enterprise. Red alert. What is it? Cessus 3 has been destroyed.
0: What Star Trek doesn't have in it, partly budgetarily and partly because it's not telling those stories, is a relentless thrusting exploration of great new vistas. Yeah. And what it hasn't got in it is the thing you mentioned just now, which is world building. And I am also allergic to world building. In the sense that it's the least interesting bit of sci-fi for me. Yeah. Because all sci-fi is or should be or is going to be an allegory for something. Yeah. So you can only really build one world and it's Earth. I don't believe you can world build because you'll forget something. You're not a god. Yes. And I think it's risky to do that. And it also attracts people whose only job is as fans is to spot holes in your world yes. building.
2: In episode 2F09, when he plays Scratchy's skeleton like a xylophone, he strikes the same rib twice in succession, yet he produces two clearly different tones. Boy, I really hope somebody got fired for that blunder. I
3: and for care. them, that's really entertaining, but I gain no pleasure from it. I don't Maybe care. it's different sorts of people. Yeah, before. I don't care how the enterprise is built. I don't care whether that corridor connects to that no. corridor. You didn't and, buy the blueprints book. I didn't buy the blueprints. You didn't Prince, buy the but... science
0: of Discworld. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it didn't. I'm sure it's lovely. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. and that's what I mean. And I think I think what we're talking about is different kinds of pleasure, Yeah. different kinds of comfort. And I'm sure that there are definitely people who. Do find comfort in poring over the AA manual of the Starship Enterprise. That's the Galaxy at... Quest thing. Yeah. Isn't
0: it? The, the aliens who know how the ship works in Galaxy Quest are a satire a nice affectionate satire on a certain kind of fandom yeah. that wants it to be real. That ship is that big.
2: Inside, I've seen many rooms. You've seen plywood sets that look like the inside. It, our Brillium sphere is is wire with plaster around it and and our uh, <laughs> our digital conveyor is a uh, christmas tree lights it's a decoration it's all fake
3: and i think what it is it's like the the model for what i want from star trek was set up with those early episodes so i want my metaphor but i don't want my metaphor to outweigh everything else i was trying to i mean like i was trying to read an ursula le guin novel um, a few months ago and basically, it, it is effectively Asgard sat the children of Fog down in front of a metaphor and explained it to them for 300 pages. And that's fine if that's what you want. And that's closer to a work of philosophy than it is to an episode of Star Trek for me. I want my metaphor, but I also want my character, and I also want my action, and I also want my fights. And I think as Star Trek has gone on, and some might say it's evolved, and I might say that it's devolved, that mix has changed and it's not the mix that i want anymore i mean even like kind of i mean because someone was saying to me oh do you you know do you like the star trek films do you like you know with kirk and spock and everything and i I don't really and i was trying to think of a kind of an analogy and it was like going to see the velvet underground at glastonbury and it's like i'm standing there this is the velvet underground It's it's the real guys i'm watching it's the velvet underground but It's not the Velvet Underground that I wanted to see. It's not the 60s Velvet Underground with the cool boots and the haircuts and the costumes. And it's not, you know, they're not playing the exploding plastic inevitable. It's these middle-aged guys in the mud playing Glastonbury. And even though I know I'm looking at the same people, everything else has changed around it. The colours have changed.
0: What you're you're looking at, the reason why you've picked... This, rather than any later iteration or the, or a film or a film from the Star Trek franchise, whatever was in this original series is a formula that worked. Yeah, and is doable again and again and again. And to do variations on it, there's a feeling that that franchise has been very fan responsive. Yes, and this is something where because it kept getting cancelled, it wasn't going to get three series, and there was a fan letter writing campaign that was organised. They sent a million letters, it was unprecedented, and in Star Trek the first show as far as i know to engage its fans in things like conventions and stuff it was very fan led and the fans love the world mm. i always find that for someone like me who doesn't really like world building that fans are the enemy of something I, yeah i hate how much fans have wrecked star wars yeah star wars for me was a film that was only about the joy of watching a film yeah i don't care where any of it's happening i don't care who did what when they were a kid they no. don't exist outside it and what it feels to me is the difference between a game and a toy yes and a game has narrative shape uh, challenges things happen in it and events and you can manipulate it and enjoy and maybe learn from what happens. And a toy is a doll's house. Yeah. They're both pleasurable things to do. Yeah. World building is, is doll's house. Yeah. And part of me goes as a writer going, I think, I mean, making stuff up, I don't find particularly interesting. And it it feels, because I can do that. And
3: also it feels very (laughs) static. You know, it feels like it's a thing that's there that you can take apart and put back together again and put characters in, but it doesn't. Yeah. It's which, I mean, this is, a podcast about comfort so it's really it has to come down to personal taste in yes. the end and i think that star trek is one of the few tv shows where it feels like all of my senses are kind of awakened by it so you've got the colors of it you've got the sounds of it but you've also got the narrative of it and, and character and everything is working together but as soon as that changes as soon as those characters are placed in different costumes or they're older or they have different haircuts or it it loses something it's like it's very like kind of i'll find you know an original album from the 1960s first pressing you know kind of the original label and then there'll be a cd reissue of it and the picture on the front will be different and it'll be Mm. remastered and it's similar but it's not the same. It doesn't smell the same. It doesn't look the same. The worst episode ever. As the franchise has gone on, it's
0: moved away from those original ingredients, maybe to please or delight a different section of the audience than you. Yeah. So it's gone for the people who prefer maybe prefer the world building, prefer the the ever expanding thing. And prefer <laughs> prefer that game of I want to learn all of
3: this, and I don't care. That's the other thing as well. I don't care. I'm not angry about this. I'm not one of (laughs) those. It's not yours anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's not mine anymore. I'm not one of those people who says they've changed my Star Trek. I mean, that the program I'm talking about is over fifty years old. It would be strange if I was still angry about it having changed. So, and of course, the original's still there. You can go. Yeah, exactly. And so, for everyone who enjoys you know, the next generation or Deep Space Nine or whatever, that's fine. It's not the thing that we're talking about. It doesn't sound the same. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't beep in the same way. Yeah,
0: you want those sounds, you want those feelings, you want those characters, and you want them to be working on the factory settings that were set at the beginning.
3: It's like, a. It's like going back to the, 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 the record from the 1960s, it's the production value of it. Like, yeah. I want the guitar to be there in the production. I want to know that this person... Worked on the strings. I want to. I want to know that the voice is still in that part of it, and I want to know that when I put the needle down on the record, I'm getting as close as possible to what it sounded like in the studio. So, if you kind of, you know, expand that kind of slightly fudged analogy, basically, I want it as close as possible to that, and as soon as it moves away from that, I'm kind of not interested.
2: To boldly go where no one has gone before.
0: What you're talking about is something which happens a lot in fandom, especially sci-fi fandom and fantasy fandom and this kind of fandom. When a franchise goes on for a long time or comes back in different iterations. Yeah. You're talking about comfort and you're saying that it takes you back to your childhood. You said you are yeah. immersed in this. The associations are important and you want it to be the same. What I think sci-fi fans, particularly and fantasy fans and genre fans forget is that things do change. Yeah. What you want is to feel like you did when you were eight. When you're going to see a new Star Wars film, you want to feel like you're eight. When you're going to see the new series of Doctor Who, you want to feel like you were eight. That can be achieved in loads of different ways by a thing being made really well, so you're as thrilled as you were when you were a child. It can just be it sounding the same or having mm. the same actors in it. But you'll notice those little changes. And the weird thing about something which is about comfort is that people get furious. The opposite of comfort. People live, that lovely phrase someone said about Doctor Who fans living in a constant state of disappointment. <laughs> I can't wait to hate how yes. wrong it's gone. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is you have to accept that the version you love will belong to you. Yeah. And to go back to it, you can't, ask them to make it again the same way you have to watch the old one
3: these people (laughs) who say you've destroyed my childhood (laughs) or i can't unsee this or whatever it is and i know they have taken on board a a means of discourse that is kind of contemporary and kind of exists on social media but at the same time it's a very odd thing to say because in a way it's the opposite for me It's like Star Trek cannot be taken away from my childhood. It cannot be removed from it. You can't have my childhood without having Star Trek. And someone coming along and making another version of Star Trek <laughs> has no effect on my childhood whatsoever and my memories of it. You that to, is
0: intact. You have to have the confidence to say that. And I think it's very funny me dealing with how I how I deal with the fact that my child likes the Star Wars prequels. Mm. Going, well, they're theirs. Yeah. As in, it's fine. They have different values. They find the things I enjoy about whatever, old Doctor Who, whatever. They go, why would you want to enjoy that? And you go, because it's not for me. I still get my thing. Yeah. And I think, oddly, what we're talking about here is saying you've got to accept different people. And you've got to say that this is for me yeah, and the other ones will be for other people. And oddly, that's the message of Star Trek (laughs) is that we've got to get along. Absolutely. And there's no point having a thing which is all about comfort, familiarity, enjoyment, fantasy, joy, exploration, and saying... And I'm going to control it to within the inch of its life. And if I don't, I'm going to lay awake all night furious.
3: Or you've just about Doctor Who. You have <laughs> basically just described the character of Charlie X in the episode <laughs> that we talked about earlier. This this is what he does. Our incel, if he can't control it, and if he can't be bent to his teenage will, his angry. Kind of pubescent will. This version of it
0: is only three seasons long, so it's preserved in aspic and it's on Netflix. You can just watch it. Yeah, just watch it. It's great. It's there, and also a show which was all about diversity mm. of opinion. Yes, and about diversity of type. I've always found Star Trek fascinating. is a really good example of the first time that a neurodiversity was shown. In that Spock is a really good character. If you find human emotion frightening. Overwhelming, confusing. Yes, there was suddenly a character on screen who raised an eyebrow, was cool, fine about it, and went, "I don't understand these people." Fascinating. Now that's a huge thing. That's as big as a on screen. Which, um, when
3: you think about it, the fact that the Doctor on board the Enterprise is the one person who doesn't understand the neurodiverse yeah. person and bullies him about yes. it is incredible. Weird.
0: But you uh, you realise how much science fiction will often feature a character. Mm. Data or Crichton or C-3PO. These humans. Sometimes I just don't understand human (laughs) behaviour. Data, why are you laughing? I do not know.
2: I've noticed your attempts to engage me in idle conversation. And I see the way your pupils dilate when you look at my body. Emotions are alien to me. I'm a scientist. Someone else might believe that. Your shipmates, your captain. But not me.
3: And it's a lovely way of saying And how, you know, how often kids identify with yeah. those characters as well.
0: You go, I don't understand what the grown-ups are doing.
1: Yeah.
3: Kirk's being
0: all horny and weird, <laughs> Dad. Oh, we'll put a character in this. We're yeah. generous enough to say, if you don't understand why, the, why these people are fighting, and this is a show that has a fist fight in Act 3, because literally that's the formula it had to follow, because yeah. otherwise they would have <laughs> cancelled it. If you don't understand why they're fighting, why they're shouting, why they're flipping over, their, why they're being uh, horny and angry and randy and awful... A character will be on screen who says, I don't understand it too. We're all welcome here.
3: Or he'll say, which is a kind of, in a way, a word that sums up the whole of those three seasons. Fascinating.
0: Yes, I will stand by and watch this. And oddly, hadn't occurred to me before, what's the mission? To explore strange new worlds. And understand more. Yeah. So one of the characters is watching the Enterprise. Yes. A strange new world, which yeah. he's fascinated by. These, are the, new, these are the
3: new lives and new civilizations.
0: Because the budget means we cannot sh- pull out to show an entire city in the clouds. We'll just look at what's going on on the bridge.
3: And, the, the fantasy- and an alien
0: guy will go, do you know what? Fascinating. Yeah. He's observing the madness of all of us. And a, a real Kurt Vonnegut, Douglas Adams trick saying, if you hover in orbit above the humans... These ape-like creatures are fascinating.
3: And also, you know, you've got Dan O'Bannon watching this and thinking, what if the rogue alien on the ship wasn't a good character? And what if he's watching these people with dark (laughs) intent? I want one where Spock goes into the ducting and eats everybody.
0: (laughs) Spock is hungry. What if part of the Vulcan life cycle is a pharyngeal jaw
1: comes
3: (laughs) out and
0: smashes their heads in? I'm watching that one. It will be great.
3: No, I was thinking more of Ian Holm, not not the alien. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry, yes, of
3: course, yeah. But I like that interpretation as well.
2: I can't lie to you about your chances,
0: but you have my sympathies. I've heard a critic call Star Trek counter dystopian, and it's a sort of strange phrase, but it's because it's not utopian because bad things happen. Yeah, it doesn't think everything's going to be brilliant. There are there are adventures, um, but it's counter dystopian as in so much sci-fi. Particularly sixty sci-fi is heading towards the thing of going. We're going to hell on a handcuff.
1: You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you!
0: God! And it's really lovely to watch something that has so much hope in it. Yeah. Um, and as my friend Will McLean said it about the pandemic, said that everything in dystopian fiction and said the moment things get tough we're going to eat each other something I like the road yeah you're going to need all your your bug out bag all your prepper thing you have to hide and your, your neighbours will fight you and he went but everyone just l- looked after each other and did jigsaws yes a counter dystopian impulse
3: is kind of nice to keep yes absolutely and I think you know the message of Star Trek is that actually everything's going to be okay
2: whatever it is let me help let me help a hundred years or so from now, I believe a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words, even over.
3: I love you. And suddenly you have a kind of an emotional reason for network TV narrative resolution. It's thematic and it's emotional. It's not just there for the network and for the advertisers. There is a kind of, Objective, philosophical reason for it for everything resolving at the end of the episode because that's it's the message. Based, yeah that's, that's the, the same. message. It's saying we've worked together, we these disparate characters, and we've encountered something, and it had the potential to go tits up. McCoy nearly ended the universe for everyone. Such a naughty. <laughs> but we sorted it all out.
2: We haven't heard much from you about Omicron Seti Three, Mister Spock. I have little to say about it, Captain. Except that for the first time in my life,
3: I was happy. And also the other thing as well, dystopias are boring. Yes. You know, it's like kind of, it's only (laughs) so many dogs eating children scenarios that you can watch without thinking... I'm a bit fed up of this, you know.
0: Threads, two rats for a fuck kind <laughs> of thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, yeah, in, yeah, You have to push that to a point where it becomes ironic or you're laughing at it because you, you, no one's going to go to them for comfort. But comfort is human. Comfort yeah. is the thing we need. If you have your hierarchy of needs, you need warmth and food and, yeah. and sustenance and love, all those things. They're all to do with comfort. You need to be comfortable. Now, yeah. Human needs don't include watching children of men. Yes. Uh, human <laughs> needs uh, probably more likely to include this. And what's lovely about it, And that comes from, as you said, the bath of colour and sound and character work and familiarity and a chance for you to exercise the part of your brain that predicts human behaviour, social interactions. It cuddles every bit of you and you watch it. And what it's about, it's not about going out and finding strange new worlds. It's not about going out into space. It's not about stars or treks. What it's about is this office in space. Yeah. They've,
1: office <laughs> in
0: space. This office, the office dynamic is that even though they're all rowing and don't like each other sometimes and they've been, they've been put in a tin and they've been set tin can and sent to space, they get along. Yeah. And it says, we've got to hope in a small bubble of air, which is this spaceship, we have to get along. And it says, do you know what? There'll be an outside threat, but we will get along. Even if the outside threat changes who we are, brings out our worst sides and we fight and one of us becomes a swashbuckler and one of us has, has like, uh, quite a lot of eyeliner and fights the good side of him. <laughs> even if the worst thing in the world's happened, even if a, a teenage boy touches a yeoman's bum, <laughs> even if the worst things happen or the place fills to the top with Muppets, yes small round Muppets, <laughs> even if the worst, most unemotional thing happens, the important thing is we've got to get along. Yeah, This is coming out around the same time as we're first getting those shots from Apollo 8 and Apollo 9, and they're turning the camera back on the Earth, and there's a little bubble of air. Well, it's weird. We've all got to get along.
3: It's, you know, it's obviously going out at the same time as, you know, Vietnam and protests and everything. And, you know, there really is a sense of it, of America going to hell in a handcart. And there must have been a huge temptation to reflect that. And it does. It is obviously about Vietnam. It is about civil rights but it's not dystopian yeah it's not soylent green no it's not make room make room it doesn't say yeah it's not the omega man yeah yeah
0: this isn't going to go it's not got that right wing thing of saying right wing dystopia says we will be punished for not being
3: selfish enough we depended too much on each other this is what the The walking dead is i was saying yeah i hate zombie
0: stuff it's boring
3: yeah it says but but it is it's right wing fantasy tv it's like kind of it's like preppers watch that and go I'd be all right in a zombie apocalypse. And And so therefore it's incredibly selfish TV because you're not watching it for the collective. You're not watching it about a group of people because you watch the walking dead and anyone can die at any moment. And the only pleasure from watching it is kind of thinking I'd be all right. I've got my guns. I, 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 I wouldn't care about anyone in a zombie apocalypse, so I'd be fine. I'd get to shoot my neighbours. I think yeah. I've like been to do for ages. See, I'm That's- the kind of guy who hates everyone, so I'd be okay in a zombie apocalypse. Whereas
0: the left wing
3: version of apocalypse is environmental collapse, which says yeah. we we're too selfish and greedy and we
0: all had too much plastic and ate too much yeah. and wanted too many burgers. And they said what we should have all done is got together and agreed we wouldn't have burgers today. So the left wing apocalypse is you kind of secretly want the planet to punish us all for being too yeah. greedy. They're both weirdly fantasies that yeah. that cuddle your own prejudices. Yeah. What this isn't, when there was a lot of right wing survivalist science fiction, this is anti dystopian. This says, if we all pull together, we'll get to go and see the start.
2: Mister Spark, Captain, full ahead. Warp factor one. Warp factor one, Captain. Ooh.
3: And you know, one of the weird side effects of that is I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well as ambient TV. <laughs> because there is a sense that all the noises it's making are comforting. So you can watch Star Trek and it's, it's, it's kind of something we haven't mentioned. You can zone in and out of Star Trek. You can have it as an auditory thing. You can have it as bright colours in the corner of your room. And then you can kind of tune back in and go, oh, I remember this bit and everything. But the general mood of it is positive and the general aura of it is positive. So even when you're not really watching it closely, I need a word here. It's like a Glade
0: plug-in. Yes. It fills the room with an ambience of 60s hope.
3: That's exactly what it is. So you're kind of, you're taking it in through. It's kind of why I was, I almost said earlier that it kind of, it excites all the senses. And I said, I said, I nearly said, well, oh, that's nonsense because it, you don't smell it. You don't take it in. But I, I really do think it is. There's kind of, it almost is like it's kind of lighting one of those expensive candles. <laughs> you should have a Star Trek, kind of, Star Trek, the original series candle. They'd
0: all be different scents for the different series, a, ba- a Babylon 5 one. Yeah, uh, I, don't,
3: it, I, don't want, I don't want to know anything about Babylon 5 candle. It's <laughs> like we'll keep Bob problem. Dylan when they talk to him about Donovan. They go, I don't know about Donovan, man. I don't know about Don- Babylon 5, man.
0: So you, as a purist, you would light as a, a beacon of hope
3: yes. and a lovely room smell. Exactly. Star
0: Trek, the original series candle. Yeah. That is the most anyone can hope from, from any form of art is that you should imagine it in scented candle form. scented
3: candle form.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we've been on a beautiful journey to a strange new world, and that's a perfect place to leave it, with the smell of William (laughs) Shatner.
1: Thank
3: you. Oh, thank you, Joel. That was great.
0: Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts find us on social media, and don't forget to like and subscribe.